Let's join in prayer. Our gracious God, with thanks we come for your to consider your word and for your blessing that awaits us as we do that. Every time we open the scriptures and seek to understand it, of course we ask for your help and we pray that we might grasp that which your word says to us. And in this rather strange passage, grant your blessing upon us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of us, I suspect, are challenged by a good riddle. And by that I don't mean your average knock-knock joke. I mean instead the kind of riddle that makes you think, think seriously to the point of giving yourself a headache. Apparently, 80% of kindergarten-age children worked out the riddle I'm about to tell you, although I cannot verify that as a fact. Anyway, see how you go with this one. What is bigger than God, more evil than the devil, the poor in the world have it, the rich of the world don't, and if you eat it, you'll die? Do you want me to read it again? What is bigger than God, more evil than the devil, the poor in the world have it, the rich of this world don't, and if you eat it, you'll die. And if you're still struggling, I'll give you this clue. If you close your eyes, you will see it. The answer is, of course, nothing. Nothing is bigger than God. Nothing is more evil than the devil. Poor in the world have nothing. The rich of the world don't have nothing, and if you eat nothing, you'll die. It's all very good to solve a riddle, but it's a huge leap from the exercise of the brain to solving the complexities of a real-life situation. I've never been a juror in a court case. I'm not qualified to speak from first-hand experience. Maybe you have but I'm pretty sure that by the time anything gets to court, it has to be more than a he said, she said scenario. He said, she said. How do you decide who is telling the truth in such circumstances as that? Well, the answer is that witnesses are called and evidence is heard and theories are weighted and arguments are presented and defended and finally the truth is found somewhere in all of that. The truth is determined. Knowing the complexities of the judicial system can help us then fully appreciate the King Solomon's wisdom in the text that we have this morning. Now we saw in the first part of chapter 3 that Solomon's wisdom came from the Lord. It was a gift of God's grace to Solomon, born out of God's love for Solomon in fulfilment to his promises, of his promises to David, his father. Solomon was the wisest of all kings. And so as we look at this text, I want you to note Solomon's wisdom and then see what that leads us to as we think of the one whom Solomon is said to foreshadow. Let's hear from verses 16 to 21, the evidence of the case presented to the king. The evidence of the case presented to the king. 
Let's put ourselves in the shoes of being the jury this morning and note from the outset that this case before us is one of those rather difficult she said, she said ones that ordinary legal trials may not be able to resolve. She said, she said. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And we'll note too, as we note the case, that the two mothers who come before the king are of questionable character because of their social status and their poverty. They have no one to act as an advocate to hear to plead their cause. A few Hebrew scholars think the term prostitutes could be rendered innkeepers, but most agree that these were women of ill repute. And so you'd think that the rights of women from the more sordid fringe of society wouldn't be granted the time of day, let alone a royal audience, to bring their case before the king. Nonetheless, Solomon showed that he cared for the lowliest of his people and like God himself, he was willing to hear their plea, even though as prostitutes, they were in violation of God's law. Now, at first glance, it seems that the case in question that came before Solomon reminds me of the people's court shows on daytime TV except it's not Judge Judy in the chair, but it's the King of Israel who sits in the chair. He's the decision maker. He's the one who will come to the right judgment. And in this case, we are told that the woman whose baby was stolen made this accusation against the other woman. Verse 19 tells us that she told the the king that the other woman smothered her own baby in the night. This is, of course, her suspicion, as she has no evidence of this, except to suppose that after smothering her baby, the woman got up and swapped the dead baby for the living one. Now, the fact that she said all this happened at midnight makes it appear that the woman was a witness to the event, doesn't it? She named the time. But it raises questions against her, doesn't it? For if she knew that the child was taken at midnight, why didn't she stop the other woman? Why didn't she say, hey, give me back my baby? The danger for her is that her statement just muddies the waters and creates an inconsistency in her story, which concludes with waking up to find a dead child and later, when better light was available noting that this child was not her own child. To which the other woman, of course, says, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. And so this she said, she said scenario begins in the presence of the king. It's clearly a messed up tangle of accusations and counter accusations that will not be separated without causing much pain to someone today. Someone's going to lose here. And so Solomon is presented with a complicated legal dilemma, a seemingly unsolvable dispute. Two women have newborn babies. They probably don't know who the fathers are. One mother mothers her child in the night and switches the babies while the other mother sleeps. 
Both claim the living child as their own. There are no witnesses. There is no CSI Jerusalem to run DNA tests. Now just before we move on to the solution of the case, let's think for a moment or two about the woman who proved herself to be the true mother of the child because there's some things that are commendable about her. For a start, she was unafraid to bring her need before the king and seek his intervention. Now, I know from experience that parenting is tough, but now that my own children are youngest 27, I also have the realisation that parenting in these days is even harder than it was then and that having what it takes to be a parent is not always something you know from the outset. And that's why I find this mother an encouragement as she went to the king with her request, an encouragement for all parents. Go to the king, not the land's king, the king of kings. Even better, when mother and father together are asking for wisdom to become a better parent. James says to us, if you need wisdom, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you. That's a paraphrase of James 1.8. He will not resent your asking. And what parent doesn't need wisdom? Then also we see in this mother the blessing of perseverance. She not only went to the king, she persevered. I wonder how many different avenues this woman had already exhausted. Had she gone to the local authorities? Perhaps a magistrate? Had they all given her the same answer? There is nothing we can do. How are we supposed to know which one of you is telling the truth and which one is lying? How often had she considered giving up, just throwing up her hands and saying, it's no good, I'll never have this situation resolved. And if she had done that, the result would have been, well, maybe I should have kept going. This woman was willing to go the second mile and the third mile, even if it meant that she, a prostitute, would have to make her way to the throne room of the King of Israel, the spiritual leader of the nation, to plead her cause. It was the actress Julie Andrews, of all people, who said this, Perseverance is failing 19 times and succeeding on the 20th. I also think of Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles, who had 19 children, 12 of whom would live. Once she was telling one of her children to do something when another beside her said, this is the 10th time you've told that child to do that. And she replied, and if I'd only told them nine times, I would have wasted my time. Perseverance has its own set of difficulties but also its own set of rewards. And if as parents we forget that our calling is to keep on keeping on in not just giving our children warmth and food and shelter and comfort and love, but forget to lead them patiently to the Lord Jesus, then we forget the main goal of parenting. 
Then also note with this woman that she was willing to sacrifice. Why was it that the woman was before the king pleading her case anyway? It was for the sake of her child. Why was she giving up her time and her pride? It was for the sake of her child. Now we all know that raising kids requires sacrifice, right? Sacrifice is galore. And you who are parents know the financial cost of that, just to feed and clothe and educate your children. That's a given. But this woman was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice of giving up her child. She would give up her opportunity of being a mother to that child. That's what set her apart from the false mother. So when Solomon brought out the sword, as we'll hear in a moment, he used that sword not to pierce the heart of the child, but the heart of the mother. Verse 26 literally reads that when he did that, her compassion grew warm. The real mother was willing to lose her child in order to let it live. True motherhood cares more about the welfare of your child than merely seeing justice done. Secondly, let's see from verses 22 to 27 the judgment of the case as determined by the king. Back in verse 9 of this chapter, Solomon had prayed for wisdom, saying, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. And so God answered, so the result of this answered prayer was that God granted him wisdom enough to know which of the two mothers spoke the truth without any hard evidence to go on. Now, if this were a court case today, a DNA testing would solve the matter very quickly and easily. But here was a situation where none of these things could be done. With no fathers to testify, since the women were prostitutes and no witnesses, because as verse 18 tells us, there was no one else in the house, only we two were in the house, and no distinct difference in age between the two babies. The task of making a judgment is tough indeed, especially in the absence of witnesses. For the Old Testament judicial system was dependent upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. We hear in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offence that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If there were no witnesses, there's no justice. And here there is much at stake. A mother will have a child stolen from her and a child could be taken from his rightful mother and for no witnesses this injustice will go unaddressed. Will the law made to protect the innocent here protect the wicked? How do we find out who's telling the truth? 
Well, Solomon employs a little psychology to find evidence that his own probing and his own dissection of the case would bring. That is the evidence of the heart and in doing so reveals the compassion of the true mother and the callousness of the false. Knowing the instincts of a mother to defend her own child, no matter what, he stages the killing of the child. The first thing he does is ask for a sword. This may have had a dramatic effect on the women who would be thinking to themselves that surely one of them is going to be put to death. But that was not the plan. To divide the child in half was the plan. To share that living child equally among the two, seeing both had claim upon it. Both claimed the child was theirs. Both said the other was lying in their claim. No witnesses were there to attest to their stories. What else could the king do in this case except propose this drastic course of action which would end the child's life and force out a response from the real mother? Solomon knew he could count on the self-sacrificing love of the true mother. Her concern for the safety of the child would surface and identify her. Solomon was confident that the true mother would show maternal emotions, that she would care more about the welfare of the child and want to keep him alive at all costs. Here was a cold, hard application of apparent justice that forced one to cry out in desperation out of a heart full of a mother's love and another to reveal that her heart was full of envy and a fair measure of hatred to boot. See how the false mother regarded Solomon's solution as fair? Either I get my way or neither of us do. See, envy is not simply wanting what someone else has. It's also wanting them not to have it. And in so doing, her cruelty is uncovered along with her deceit. Her heartless response reveals her true colours, just as the mother's response revealed itself in the heart expression of love. And without witnesses... Solomon is able to solve an apparently unsolvable case and justice which might have gone undone was fully satisfied. Verse 27, the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. It does beg the question though, doesn't it? Would he have gone through with the killing of the baby? If the true mother had not cried out, the child likely would have been given to neither, with both mothers likely to lose. But happily, the true mother was united with the child. Third, let's think on the fame of this case that glorified the king. We are told of the effect of this Success in verse 28, and all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. 
They were not just impressed. This was more about fear. Here is the translation that one commentator offers. All Israel heard the judgment with which the king judged and they feared before the king for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. That is to say, those who thought they could now commit a crime and get away with it on the basis of a technicality that there were no witnesses were robbed of their confidence. And those who were not intent on committing any crimes were filled with awe and deep respect. When the people learned what the king did for two of his more despised subjects, they saw how truly he must care about Israel, all Israel. And no one could doubt that such wisdom coming from a single man, not a jury, not a panel of judges, but one single man was evidence of God's approval of the king. Such wisdom can only come from above. People don't care what you know till they know that you care, someone said. They knew that their king was a man of discernment and compassion. So too for us as God's people. That's just what we know, isn't it? That when we feel abused, that when we are cheated, when we are mistreated, when we don't get justice that there is one greater than Solomon who pleads our case. When life seems unfair, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus who sits at the right hand of God and who has been appointed, as we heard in Acts chapter 10, the judge of all the earth. And in him we have one who is all wisdom, and all compassion. So what do we learn from the story? How do we apply it? Well, let's think of the ways in which we shouldn't apply it, the wrong way to apply the message. For a start, the story is not there to defend prostitution. The fact that the women were prostitutes is not meant to be a commendation of that lifestyle, but a reminder that even the lowest of those on the social scale received a fair hearing from the king. Let's also not apply it by saying that children can be cut in half and that children are expendable. Again, that's not the point of the story. Children are precious. And though the king chose to raise the sword in this way against a baby... It was not with harm or malice in mind that he did that, but to pierce the heart of the mother. So what's the right way to interpret the story? Well, once again, here's an Old Testament text that points us to Jesus. You cannot help but turn from the type to the reality, from the shadow to the substance. When we see Solomon tested by this dilemma, we cannot help but think of Jesus, who faced so many tests of his wisdom. Would he allow them to stone the woman caught in adultery or let her go free? 
and so appear to have no regard for the law of Moses. What does he do? You who without sin cast the first stone. Would he endorse the paying of taxes to Caesar and so appear to support him? Whose inscription is this? Oh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Would he stand for the scriptures when it came to understanding marriage and divorce or throw in his lot with the liberals of the day who would divorce for any and every reason? Would he testify to being the Messiah and so placing himself in danger from men on a greater scale? Yeah, Solomon's wisdom was great. But there is one greater than Solomon whose wisdom is greater than Solomon. And just as the wisdom of Solomon cast a godly fear over all the nation, so we remember that Jesus has been given the right to judge all mankind and is to be feared by all mankind. Paul says, Romans 14.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. While on the one hand this truth urges us to live our lives in reverent fear, before the eyes of him from whom we cannot hide. On the other hand, we remember the truth of Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is how we understand this event. It points us to the best judge of all, the better judge, who will not need eyewitnesses. He cannot be bribed and he will punish every wrong and the only safe place to be is to be found in him, to know him as saviour before we face him as judge and he calls for his sword. For there is none like him And none is wise, and none is able to save as he is. Will you make him your hope for justice? Let's pray. We bring thanks to you, Heavenly Father, for this text that again brings us to consider the wisdom of the King, but also the King of Kings. The wise rule but also the justice that he will bring when we consider him as judge, when all the world will appear before him and he will separate them into two, those on his left and those on his right, the sheep and the goats, how we should fear him and stand in awe of him, but also come to him now before the day comes and it's too late. We heard this morning from your word that you have appointed him to judge the living and the dead and you have testified to this truth by raising him from the grave. So help us live 
in reverent fear before him as judge, but yet also remember that he took our place at condemnation that we might be spared. Help us, help us to find that safe place before him. We give you thanks for your word this day. Pray your blessing upon it and upon our hearts as we have heard it together. May it live within us for Jesus' sake. Amen.